all comments and observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode of Professionally Embarrassing are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. to Professionally Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika, and me, Maddie. Hello everyone and welcome back to Professionally Embarrassing. Now, We didn't record for a good couple of months, but this week, not only do you have the bumper case law episode, which just went out, but we're recording again. And that's because we have a very special guest, the one, the only, Lucy Reed, soon to be KC. Now, Lucy is maybe the original family law blogger. I don't know. We'll ask her a bit more about how she first got into family law blogging. She is the chair of the Transparency Project, and she is, of course, a family law barrister at St. John's Chambers in Bristol. And maybe, and most importantly, she is a fan of the podcast. So let's welcome Lucy. Hello, Lucy. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Lucy, are you the original family law blogger? Do you think you'd claim that title? Uh, No, I don't think I am. I think I was probably the first barrister to do blogging. There were other lawyers around the same time, but they were mostly solicitors, I think. So probably the first barrister. And I provoked much eye rolling and disdain at the time. We can't possibly relate recording a family law podcast. (laughs) Your blog, Lucy, is Pink Tape. For those listeners who don't know, which I'm sure is not very many, because I'm sure there's a huge amount of crossover between people who are interested in this podcast and people who are interested in your blog. But how did you get started on that? When did you start and, and where did it come from? I started it in 2007, I think. Uh, so quite a long time ago now. I started it just as I was starting out at the bar. Initially, it well, actually, it's still quite frivolous at times but initially it was a bit silly and I didn't really know what I was doing and I started I think to take it slightly more seriously when I went on maternity leave and I kind of treated it as a a method to try and force myself to keep myself up to speed while I was off being pregnant having babies and then it sort of carried on and I haven't stopped I haven't quite stopped doing it I'm not doing as many blogs as I was in the heyday but I'm still going Now, we will get on to your work in transparency and the work you do with the Transparency Project. But before we do that, obviously, the big, big news, Lucy, is that you have just been appointed as King's Counsel. Now, we did check with you before we started recording whether you are actually a KC yet, and you're not. Not yet. Soon to be, soon to be. How did it feel finding out? How did you find out? When did you find out? Oh, well, how did I find out? I found out on receipt of a letter from the appointments people, which began with the word, unfortunately, (laughs) which was unfortunate. But anyway, that's how I found out just before Christmas. Initially, we thought we were going to have to keep it a big secret until the new year. But then all of a sudden, 
with pretty much no warning, it was out there. So it was a slightly surreal, no, it was a really surreal experience, actually. And it's still quite a surreal experience. It's sort of taken everything over, even though I'm not yet a KC. I saw that on Twitter, the unfortunately thing. Was that just a mistake and and it actually just had read, unfortunately, you have been appointed or was did you just get no, the wrong? No, it was because they were prefacing the letter with an explanation of why they couldn't make an announcement before Christmas. But okay. then all of a sudden they could and they did. So it was a bit discombobulating. I mean, the whole thing would have been discombobulating anyway, but <laughs> made it slightly more of a roller coaster. How was the entire process of applying for Silk? I mean, we've both heard horror stories from others who've done it we've heard of people who hire silk consultants we've heard of people who didn't get it first time but then got it the next time round. how did you find the process of applying for silk horrible completely contrary to every instinct in my body you have to find some way of making yourself tick the boxes in the way they want you to tick them while still remaining you're retaining some kind of authentic self it's really hard it's really hard because they have to have a competency-based system um, but you have to kind of fit yourself in the within the structures the framework that they've devised to to sift the wheat from the chaff it's um it's a really uncomfortable experience did you doubt yourself at any point did you think uh yes (laughs) completely I mean I'll say this because I think it's important you know I've got experience of succeeding now but I've also got experience of not succeeding so it feels really difficult talking about it because I know how awful people who applied but didn't get it will be feeling right now because I was feeling that way last year and so it's sort of a really mixed feeling because it's such a brutal process sorry I'm bringing it down now I mean it's it's been amazing but there is another side to it and it really takes so much out of you. My blood pressure's gone down actually since, <laughs> since I found out. So which tells you how much stress I was carrying. I think it's really important that we talk about that though, because we know that a lot of our listeners are people applying for pupillage or students or barristers applying for tenancy, pupils applying for tenancy. And I think a lot of being at the bar is that very binary system of applying for something and either yes or no and getting very little feedback and very little opportunity for consultation and growth within those procedures so things like pupillage and tenancy and appointments and judicial committees whatever it might be it's a very binary system and I think a lot of people that listen to this show or have me and Malvika have both had it have applied for things they've wanted and not got it and I think talking about that's really important because it's really important when I applied three times I think I've slightly lost count now three times to be a recorder and I think I just applied the third time out of bloody mindedness and I made a point of saying because I got lots of congratulations online, which was a bit weird. I made a point of saying I applied before because I think it's such a lonely job. You don't get any feedback in the job. The only feedback you get is that you either get an appointment or you don't. You know, occasionally you get a nice thank you card from a client, but in our line of work, not very often. And you don't really get any benchmark against which to kind of feel that you're doing okay. And I think we're all... Uh, however cocky we might appear we're all actually really insecure at the bar (laughs) you feel all the time you're doubting yourself perhaps women more than men I don't know but all that imposter syndrome stuff so it's um I think it's important to say it isn't it that you don't always get it first time sometimes maybe you weren't meant to get it sometimes you should just have another go sometimes you just weren't approaching it in the right way now I keep saying we'll get to your transparency related work and we will but 
before we move on from the topic of you getting silk, did you ever feel that all the presence you have on social media, the work that you're doing, I'll put it in this way politely, niggling the higher ups in the profession about transparency and, and being a bit of an activist within your role as well as being a barrister. Did you ever think that would work against you in your silk application? Because I know Maddie and I are constantly panicking that this podcast is going to come back to bite us at some point if we end up wanting to apply for you know something similar 20 years down the line. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think there is nothing wrong with speaking truth to power and there is nothing wrong with having an opinion. There are ways of respectfully challenging the status quo or your seniors or your peers or whatever and engaging in a respectful debate. I don't think anyone should ever be criticised for that. It's the stuff that, you know, we do it in courtrooms. We probe and we say hang on a minute is that right that's all I do in other forums I think so yeah there was a time certainly where I know that you know when blogging and social media was very new that there was as I said earlier a lot of sniffiness about how appropriate it was for someone at the bar to be doing something like that but I you know I've always just thought frankly that's I'm not going to swear Maddie but that is rubbish and um I think I've probably been proved right so all those people who said you know it was inappropriate hey look at me now now. (laughs) (laughs) so I I think isn't it important though to be having you know we're not this rarefied I know I've just come back from the legal outfitters and and having myself fitted for the silly outfits but leaving that aside we don't operate in a vacuum away from the real world. We're performing a public service and we should be able and willing to talk about what we do and why we do it and to hear some pushback. And we should be challenged by other people's opinions of what we do right and what we do wrong. And we should be reflective in what we do. I'm very I, philosophical today, aren't I? I completely agree, but I think it's unfortunate that, you know, maybe unlike the US, we don't really have much of a culture of sort of movement lawyering here where people do step out of their role in the courtroom I mean obviously there are individuals and particularly people who practice in certain sets and in certain areas of law who are much more vocal but by and large I think there's this impression that barristers should keep to themselves that they're that they should be you know a little bit apart from everyone else aloof up on their ivory tower but I don't buy that you've got to be you've got to be independent right you've got to be able to maintain the confidence of the court and your client or if you've got a judicial role you've got to be able to maintain your independence in that capacity as well but I don't think there's ever anything wrong in reflecting and talking about what you do you know I don't view myself because I talk about my job on social media I don't view myself as a campaigner or a movement lawyer or whatever I just reflect on my practice and the impact that my job and the way I do it has on the people that it's for that's all with that in mind and I think that's a really interesting point because I can see what you mean in terms of you know you're not actively wanting to be an activist <laughs> so with that in mind I mean how, why do you think it's had such an impact because obviously you are the, the lead, I'm sure anyone listening to this knows you're the leader of the charge really on transparency the president talks about you all the time and you're involved in the, yeah in the transparency implementation group yeah, yeah. And the committee that devised so, Bearing in mind that you just felt you were reflecting on your job and kind of just giving, giving your thoughts over, why do you think that has had such an impact, if that's possible for you to answer? I don't know. I mean, 
I think hopefully I've helped with lots of other people to create a space where people feel able to have conversations and also they feel a bit like they maybe ought to reflect a bit more themselves so they are engaging in more discussions and thought about it I mean there's lots of different views about transparency right there are and I know from some of the committee work that we've done on devising the pilot there is a really wide range of views and lots of anxiety that this new pilot will maybe not work well I don't know this band has some teething problems so it's really important that we all hear those different perspectives and kind of factor it into trying to move it forwards but you know it's not just me that's I think affected a shift in it's not so much mindsets it's about the fact that it's more visible and it's a topic that's on the agenda and it has been for the last few years I mean it's partly that we've just been persistent and we don't shut up and when I say we I'm talking about the transparency project it's just that there's a continual drip drip effect and we've tried to engage with the judiciary and engage with the public and engage with lawyers and done lots of training events and what have you rather than just you know I think when we first started the transparency project we were much more two-dimensional when we first started it it came out of the re-p the Italian c-section case and the really rubbishy reporting some of the really rubbishy reporting there was about that case and so the the initial impetus was much narrower it was really about challenging not very great journalism but it sort of has become much more three-dimensional and it's about challenging journalists it's about challenging judges and lawyers to think about how they do things it's about challenging social work professionals it's about challenging ourselves about how it, how and why we do the things we do and trying to try and make a more healthy system that's reflective. So I'm using the word reflective a lot, but I do think that's that's really important. It's about looking in and other people looking into our system, but looking in on ourselves as well. So how is it that you first became interested in open justice? When did it click that this is something that you needed to delve into more? When did it click that you wanted to do the work that you're doing with the Transparency Project? So it sort of goes back before the REP. The REP case was when we finally got together and said, let's start up some kind of group, collective, whatever. That was 2014. But before that, obviously, I'd been doing Pink Tape and I had been... So not long after I started Pink Tape, I started to write the Family Court Without a Lawyer. And so a lot of what was going on on Pink Tape was I was writing discrete blog posts that would explain some basic but important thing like the difference between a barrister and a solicitor. Because there were even then, this is before LASPO, right, there were still quite a lot of litigants in person. And Basic things like that, not understanding who the different actors are in the court process, not understanding the basics of the process and how it's sequenced, what the expectations are of your behaviour in a courtroom or how a hearing will operate. Those are really big things and they're really big barriers to justice. And they also impact on the way people understand what's happened to them and why. So their interpretation or their narrative of what's happened or gone wrong in their case will be distorted as well if they don't even understand the basic building blocks and so I was explaining a lot of that on pink tape to people so there was a certain amount of sort of myth busting and helping to give people basic legal literacy not necessarily about the law but the the kind of process and the frameworks and that all sort of came together with the issue again about finding that I and other legal bloggers were repeatedly having to correct 
inaccurate pieces of reporting in the media about family courts or other types of things to sort of set the record straight and say hang on a minute that sounds this particular comment piece news item whatever it is sounds really scary but it can't be legally accurate because or if you read the judgment actually it doesn't say that it says something slightly different and so that all sort of coalesced and the big bang was after EP and then it's well the rest is is history I suppose we've just evolved from there and we've tried always to be really as best we can to have a mix of people we've got practicing lawyers we've got publishers we've got journalists you know the uh, makeup of the group ebbs and flows over time but we've always got a mix and we try to find other ways of bringing in other voices and perspectives so there's a lot of listening and we try not to be too dogmatic and all your hard work obviously culminated in the transparency review that was released not that long ago how did you feel about the transparency review was it the push for open justice that you thought was needed do you think it could have gone further do you think it went far enough I think we were really pleased when it came out. I mean, it's been a long time coming, right? And um, I don't want people listening to think that I or the Transparency Project take credit for somehow making it happen. We made as good a contribution to the process as we could. And you know, um, Malvika, we put in the most ridiculously long evidence submissions to that review. But it's, you know, this has been going on for decades, this debate. It goes backwards and forwards or it goes round and round in a loop and it gets stuck. Every so often there's a tiny step forwards. But it's not, this is not something that the Transparency Project invented as a problem. It's a problem that predates it. And it will be a problem that will continue even after the Transparency Review's been forgotten. Because it's just, it is a really difficult thing. It will always be difficult. There isn't a solution like a button you can press that will solve this because it's a conundrum that... You have to strike the right balance in the individual case and the individual case will demand something different. So, you know, I think the transparency review report was really encouraging. It's obviously frustrating. It doesn't go further, but I understand all of the reasons why that is. It's frustrating. It hasn't gone faster. Sir Andrew McFarlane last night when we went to the launch of the pilot expressed his own frustration that it hasn't gone faster. But you know, at the same time, I've been on four of the five subgroups of the Transparency Implementation Group. I cannot tell you how many meetings there have been. I cannot tell you how much work has been put in by all sorts of people. I mean, the number of people who are involved in that super committee is vast. The amount of collective energy that's gone in is vast. And these aren't easy things to solve that it is complicated and the pilot in particular I think as Sir Andrew said last night has actually been really hard to it's not so much the structure that's the problem it's getting enough buy-in to make it work on the ground because people are understandably really nervous about it they're nervous and I think perhaps less acknowledged they're defensive as well they're frightened about it because it is it's anxiety inducing for people who are used to working in private and making their mistakes in private. And we all make mistakes, but this feels quite frightening, I think, for people. For people who aren't au fait with what the group is or what the pilot is, could you give a potted summary of what's going on and what yeah. we have to look to with the pilot? So a uh, potted summary, right. In children proceedings, which are usually heard in private, there are quite heavy statutory restrictions on what can usually be reported. So although the media journalists have been able to, they've had a right to attend most 
children hearings since 2009, so quite a long time, they don't very often go because they know that they will have to wait to the end of the case and make an application for permission to report and it might be granted and it might not and they might have a story at the end of it and they might not so they might have wasted their resource it costs them money to send a journalist to court so they don't do it unless they think they're on a winner or it's really obviously newsworthy and that's why the rule that was brought in in 2009 fell a bit flat on its backside because it didn't there were too many barriers to journalists attending because they can't report. And the same thing applies to a lesser degree with the legal, what was the legal blogging pilot in 2000 and, hmm, 2018, 17-18, we proposed that legal bloggers, by which I mean qualified lawyers who are not involved in the case, but they come along with a sort of journalist hat on, could come and have that right to attend. That's now been part of the rules since 2018, but those barriers apply to us as well as legal bloggers. So it's less of a problem because at the end of the day, all that happens is I take a day off to go legal blogging and I've wasted my day off if I can't report. But it still is quite a big disincentive in fairness, as well as I'm giving up my day off to go legal blogging, that I might not be able to report anything. That said, when I do apply, typically I do get permission to report. So, but the pilot, to answer your question, Malvika, which you asked about 10 minutes ago, the pilot reverses the presumption that you can't report anything. So as well as having a right to attend, in those cases in the pilot, and it's not every court, it's just three courts for the moment, a journalist who goes and sits in on one of those hearings knows that they are going to be allowed to report. They're not allowed to identify the family. It has to be anonymous. And there will be individual cases, again, where the judge says, well, I know all the cases in this court are in the pilot, but this one, this one can't be in the pilot. It's not suitable and you can't report. So there will be obviously exceptions, but the general approach is going to be we're reversing the presumption. If you come, you're you're on a pretty safe bet that you'll be able to report something. And that makes it much easier for people to make the decision to come to court and sit through a hearing. And it will be mostly a hearing they know nothing about to see what comes of it and what they think they might be able to write about. So that's what the pilot is. For those of you who have more questions about that, the first case I think came out on the 25th, it's called ReBR and others. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. And that is in front of Mr Justice Poole. And he sets out in some detail both the law around transparency and what the new pilot says. And it's entirely, as, as Lucy has said, that the presumption is essentially reversed. So the court looks at what it should be restricting rather than what it should be reporting. So any questions about the law on that, you can read that case. It's quite short. It's only about 45 paragraphs. So that's worth having a look at. Lucy, in terms of all this work and and, and the, the steps in which we've taken forward, have, have you noticed any change in really on the ground? Because the reason, from my understanding of what you're saying, that, that you're passionate about this is because, as you say, it can be a barrier to justice and a barrier to the access to the courts and to individuals' families' rights and the way that they interact with the state. Have you noticed that there's been a shift in that? Have people actively told you that they feel that they're, they're more aware of what's happening or is it still in its nascent stages in terms of a, a sort of cultural attitude? Do you mean professionals? Do you mean, you, do I think there's a shift in the attitudes of professionals or do you mean the public? I mean the public. Oh, because you see the public, this is going to sound really patronising, it's not meant to sound patronising, but the public have always thought that they know what's going on in the family court because they share information amongst themselves. But the question is how typical or objective or reliable is that information? But it's a sort of self-perpetuating circle. I mean, the amount of information that's circulating out there on the internet 
on social media, notwithstanding those statutory restrictions we were talking about that stop the media from reporting anything. There's vast amounts of information out there and some of it will be accurate and some of it won't. But what a lot of it will be is really subjective and it will be tied up with what people think has happened and what people feel was wrong about the process. And that isn't always the most useful information for people coming into the process to help, A, to help calm their nerves and B, to help them inform themselves about what to expect and how to respond. And so I think it, what people tend to see is horror stories. They read about other people's horror stories and the family court's corrupt and it's this and it's that. And I have this terrible experience. And then when this new person then themselves arrives in the family court, their heckles are up, their defences are up. And it to me, I've seen lots of clients who respond in a particular way. And I think, goodness me, I wonder what you've been reading on the internet. And so that has to be unpicked before you can build the trust of a client. And I'm not saying one of the things the Transparency Project has always been really careful not to say is this is not about PR for the family court, right? This is not about proving that the family court's jolly good and there's no problem with it because frankly that's a ridiculous aim because it's very imperfect there is lots of good work there are lots of good people who work really really hard and have lots and lots of skill but there are also lots of problems and some of what is out there is accurate and some of what is out there is legitimate criticism you know you think about complaint that's been made for a number of years about how the courts dealt with domestic abuse that we spent a long time saying, no, 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 that's a load of rubbish. If only you knew what really goes on. But in fact, we've now seen, as the layers are peeled away, that sometimes, maybe not all the time, maybe not as often as people might worry about, sometimes it goes really badly wrong on that particular topic. And we've probably, because we've been forced to confront that, because it's been out there a bit more, we've probably improved our practice and the way that we do things. So that's why it matters, because it makes us look at ourselves and think, oh, that might be a legitimate criticism. Maybe we could do that better. And it also means that when people go searching for information, hopefully, as well as the subjective personal accounts of what happened to me, there is also some more balanced objective material. They can form a, a more balanced view on So let's run it back to the beginning, Lucy. I said that we would allow you to introduce yourself and realise that I actually never did that. But Oh, you know all about me now, though. I've said it all, haven't I? (laughs) Tell us about how you got into the profession, how you got into family law, why you wanted to be a barrister, because so many of our listeners are at that stage. They're deciding whether to come to the bar or they've just started at the bar or they're deciding whether to enter the family justice system or not. So how is it that you ended up where you are now? Okay, well, I didn't want to be a lawyer. I didn't want to be a family lawyer. I'll wind it back and tell you how I got here. How did I get here? I went to a convent school, even though my parents aren't religious, don't really know why. I went to a fairly ordinary comprehensive school after that. I performed all right. I quite liked school. I went off to university. I thought I wanted to be an artist. Then I thought I wanted to be an academic. Then I uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, as you can tell. And then I became somewhat by chance the president of the student union at my college in London when I was doing a master's. Because by that point, I wanted to be an academic and I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I ended up being the president of the Students' Union for two years. And I, in the course of that, sat on 
billions of committees, governors, this, that, and the other. I did all the academic appeals. I set up an advice centre. And I think I probably got to about the third or fourth of my long-standing academic appeal clients and people that came to me in crisis in the students' union saying, you should be a lawyer. I got to about the third of those and I thought, why do people keep saying I should be a lawyer? And then I I know it's very sim- oversimplified, but I think I thought, well, I probably I'm quite good at arguing or probably I'm quite determined and I don't shut up in committees. And I went and I went and researched it. I'd never thought before then about being a lawyer at all. So by the time I settled on that plan of action and got myself a place on on the conversion course, so I hadn't done a law degree, I was, how old was I, 24, something like that. I started my bar course the week I got married, did my bar course, got pupillage at a set which at the time was a mixed set. I wanted to do charity law whatever that is charity law and discrimination law that's what I wanted to do and I got pupillage and just before we started pupillage we got a letter saying oh there's been a few changes around here quite a few people have left and quite a few people have joined and now we're going to be a family specialist set but you can still come if you'd like to and of course um we didn't really have any other options so we came spitting feathers neither of us wanting to be family lawyers we both still are family lawyers And um, that's just one of those serendipitous things that happens in life because I was furious and I hated it. I hated it with an absolute passion, didn't want to do it, didn't want to be pigeonholed into a woman's area of law, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, I love it now. And um, I don't do the money work anymore, but um, the children work, I just it was just what I was better at. I did do employment for quite a while until I went on maternity leave and I thought I just can't cope with keeping myself up to speed with European regulations and this that and the other as well as family law I'm just going to narrow it down to one one area but yeah that's how I I came into the bar nobody identified it when I did that little exercise with the careers advisor where you punch in your details and it tells you I think it told me I I was going to be a librarian (laughs) told me I should be a librarian so that's how I came to the bar and I still don't really feel like I fit in actually why not Mm, I think it's just I mean I'm the first first member of my family to go to university I don't come from some terribly deprived background you know I, I grew up in a nice town it was a pretty ordinary comprehensive but it wasn't a terrible comprehensive it served me fine Uh, you know everyone at my school thought I was posh because my dad was a bank manager but I still don't feel like fitting I didn't go to Oxford I don't have posh accent apparently I've got a West Country accent but I can't hear it but I yeah I still don't feel like I fit in actually do you feel like you fit in you two um I think well I mean I'm a posh white girl who went to Cambridge so I'm probably all right but I think I think the the face of the bar is changing so much now I think when you were doing pupillage and I'm, I say this only because I assume you are a few years older than us that when you were doing pupillage that the bar was really the male pale and stale and, and the way that it was and has been known to be for a very very long time and, and even when I was doing pupillage it felt like that and then in the last few years it's just changed so much and there's been such an active push yes. by so many people 
to change that and to try and shift that forward and move that forward. Hopefully, you know, me and Maverick have tried to be a, a small part of that as well, making it more open, making it more diverse, making it much more representative of the people that we're meant to represent. So I think it, you know, I, hopefully that that will change. But yeah, it's definitely something that I, I know a lot of my friends who are pupils still or very junior tenants very much still feel that way because like you it sort of ties in with the transparency doesn't it because the only times you see barristers are on tv unless you've done something really really wrong or you're in crisis and those people are always portrayed in a particular way so it does make the profession seem so alien but it it goes back to the imposter syndrome thing doesn't it I mean I don't know if it helps more junior people or not to know that it doesn't go away that you still feel like I still feel like a bit of an outsider and I, you know, I do quite often think, given that I'm, you know, I'm white, I'm probably middle class, I'm, you know, I'm not from a particularly disadvantaged background, but I just think how much stronger that sense probably is for lots of other people who've come up alongside or behind me. There's definitely, it's definitely so much more mixed and more open than it was. So that's good. But I don't suppose those feelings are, we've not eradicated it. I'm sure that other people feel the same the same way. Yeah, I think my background has helped me assimilate into the bar. You know, I'm also from relatively middle class background. I went to an elite university, but there have been a few occasions. I'm, I'm sure I've talked about this off the podcast, but I'm not sure if I have on the podcast where you go to these gatherings where there are lots of older barristers, older men, middle class white men who I find sort of look right through me. And this was especially the case when I hadn't yet started pupillage. You go to these networking events where you'd meet barristers and things like that. And I remember saying to my boyfriend at the time, who's white, that it felt like everyone was gravitating towards him. And it felt like I wasn't even in the in the room. And until I said, I have pupillage, it almost felt sometimes like no one had any interest in talking to me. And I don't know how much it was in my own head that it felt like they think that you know, I'm not worth their time. They'd they'd think that I'm probably not even going to make it as a barrister. So they're not really engaging with me as much as they are with him. And I remember finding that really difficult to put into words and explain that to him because he'd obviously not had the same experience of that event as I did. Mm. And I think I would guess, I don't know, that it's probably not even, it's not even a conscious sort of slight. It's a totally subconscious writing off that people don't realise that they're doing. I'd like to think that now, I know you haven't been at the bar that long, Malvika, but I'd like to think now that more people would be reflective on those. Because we've all got subconscious prejudices, right? That you just the trick is to be checking them and saying to yourself, Oh, why did I just do that? And I think probably we're a bit more all of us are a bit more reflective about that. But that's a really uncomfortable experience though, Malvika. Getting better though. Getting better yeah. every and I do think that practicing in Birmingham which is an incredibly diverse city and I'm from Leicester it's actually quite unusual for me to be the odd one out in Leicester you know there are loads of Indians and yeah. then I'm at the University in London which is also incredibly diverse so I've been quite fortunate in that I've never felt massively excluded from spaces but you know I had a work experience student once who said that part of the reason why she'd reached out to me to ask if she could do some work shadowing is because she'd been looking at the profiles of barristers on lots of different chamber sets and I was the first one who looked like her and so it's still having an impact on people who are joining the profession, who want to join the profession now. It does make such a difference. I think it's really hard for those chambers that haven't got a good mix to change the mix, because as you say, they don't, when you do your initial research, they don't look very welcoming because it tells, you know, the pictures paint, you know, tell a story. And so it's really slow progress, isn't it? In 
attracting um, a diverse new population to your chambers as well as retaining and supporting and all the rest of it and I think what a lot of people forget and we talked about this at length in our pupillage episode for those of you listening who are interested or currently going through that I know the deadline's in a couple of weeks pupillage is recruited by barristers it's not by HR it's not by a particular specialist it's done by overworked barristers for free in their spare time people like people who look and sound like them so that's just natural. And so it does mean that whoever is in charge of the recruitment process tends to have a little bit more unconscious, bringing in a little bit more unconscious bias than another person would because they are actively recruiting for their own set and they're doing it without much. I mean, obviously everyone needs fair recruitment training now and, and so on, but that's sort of the basics without much HR or without much consultation about what that means or what that will do to shape the future of the profession. Um, and I think a lot of people forget that. Most pupillage committees, I think, are much better than they used to be back using objective criteria and trying to find ways yeah. of avoiding that subconscious bias slipping in. I mean, I do remember applying for a tenancy when I started out and being told after interview, no, no, we're, we're not going to have you. And I asked for feedback and the feedback was that they didn't think I'd fit in. And it was because I hadn't gone to public school. I mean, I know I knew it when I left the room. I didn't fit in and that's what their feedback was you wouldn't get that now I would like to think no uh, it is much much better and there's there's really strict formats now in terms of interviews and things which is really good but I think it's still we're not governed by anyone we're all self-employed you know there's going to be gaps and and stuff that we need to be conscious of as we move through the process and because people who apply for people are little most of the time they're really young and they need to be you know treated in a way that's actively and openly fair Finally then, Lucy, because we'll move on to our last couple of segments after this, but we always ask this. We've only had two guests, but we always ask it. What advice would you give to people who are currently listening, who want to become barristers, who want to perhaps take silk, who want to achieve tenancy, pupillage, whatever it might be? What would be your overriding piece of advice? I think my overriding piece of advice would be to believe in yourself and That sounds very cheesy, but it is important. You know, you do have to keep reminding yourself you are good enough. And you also have to, I think for most of these processes, you have to be able to articulate what we're all massively conditioned not to do. You have to be able to articulate that you're good. You have to be able to get it out of your mouth that I'm really good at this. I can do this and to say it. And I think women in particular find that really hard. I think that women family barristers in particular find that really hard because we spend our whole life talking about other people and painting a picture of the adversity or the experiences of someone else we don't talk about ourselves in the courtroom when you know it's not ever about us if you're applying for something whether it's to start at the bar or to get an appointment or whatever you have to talk about yourself and that's horrible it's counterintuitive and you have to try to find a way of saying what you're good at without sounding like a massive big head. It's very uncomfortable. That's really interesting because Hannah Markham said something very similar when we interviewed her as well and said how difficult she found having to sell herself doing something that seems to come so naturally to men. So it's interesting that your advice is also believe in your own source, put your eggs in your own basket, Tick all your own checklists. Are there any other Love Islandisms I've missed? I'm sorry. Lucy's probably tired of me referencing Love Island and all the transparency project emails. I'm such an old woman, Malvika, that I don't even know when you're referencing Love Island. It just goes completely (laughs) over my head. (laughs) 
Right. So next segment of the podcast, book, podcast, talk, recommendations. Lucy, before I move on to mine, there is an upcoming event for prospective legal bloggers next week. Do you want to tell our listeners about that and who's invited to come and attend that and why they might find it interesting? Okay, on the 2nd of February, Thursday, half past five, we're running an online training session for prospective legal bloggers, i.e. lawyers who wish to go to court under the Family Procedure Rules 27.11 to observe hearings and hopefully then either to report them under the pilot or to apply for permission to report them if it's a court where the pilot isn't running. So we're going to tell you all about what being a legal blogger is, why it's a great idea from an altruistic point of view or a personal development point of view, tell you how it's done, tell you all the pitfalls, etc, etc. So yes, anybody who's interested in that, please come along send us an email to trustees at transparencyproject.org.uk and I'll put you on the list. Fab. So my recommendation is slightly frivolous, but also not. It's the Vardy and Rooney Channel 4 dramatisation, which is so juicy, I can't tell you. I don't know how legally accurate it is. I have no idea what they're talking about most of the time. But if you have been hiding behind a rock the last couple of years, it's a dramatization of the Wagatha Christie saga between Colleen Rooney and Rebecca Vardy. And the first, I've only finished the first episode. There are two episodes, I believe. The first episode is effectively the cross examination of Rebecca Vardy. And it is cringeworthy and I believe that they've drawn quite a lot from the court transcripts themselves so they've used a lot of the dialogue that was used in court and if this actually happened in court oh my goodness I don't know how anyone kept a straight face in that courtroom but definitely tune in it's available on all four you can watch it on demand and I will be watching the second episode which I think is the cross-examination of Colleen Rooney uh, Colleen Rooney in quotation marks whoever that actress is she has a fabulous scouser accident I don't know if it's authentic or not but tune in it's a really really juicy Friday evening watch with a tub of popcorn and you can pull apart everything that is said in court and it's also a pretty good example of really effective cross-examination yeah they, they have lifted it from the transcripts there's also a really good for anyone interested in the law on it there's a really good today in focus episode from the guardian called the wagatha christie case i think it's in three parts and they look at the defamation laws in the uk look at the johnny depp trial as well um, and it's a really interesting summary for kind of people who aren't in that particular area so yeah listen to that as well mine is a little bit more nerdy i'm afraid this week uh, my recommendation is a gresham college lecture given by um professor joe delahunty along with professor owen arthurs who's a, a doctor and it's about medical experts in the family court it was live, I think, on the 19th, but the video is still on the Gresham College website, and I'll link it again in the show notes. Experts is such a hot topic at the moment. They were beating us around the head with experts at the uh, Family Law Bar Association conference that both me and Lucy went to a few weeks ago, and it really is becoming clear that experts' is a go- experts' role and experts' use is going to start to change in the next few years. And therefore, it's vital that people understand actually what their role is and what we need them for. And this lecture does that fabulously um, and really helpful uh, input from Professor Arthurs as well. So I'll put the link in. And for those of you who don't know Gresham College, it's got vast amounts of resources in all areas, medicine, law, sport, media, whatever it might be. There's huge amounts of recorded lectures from people who are really senior in their particular fields. And it's all grouped by area. So you can have a look at all the previous law ones as well. I know that Leslie Thomas Casey does a lot of them as well. So that's really interesting. Um, So, yeah, check that out. 
Lucy, is there anything that you've read, looked at, watched, listened to recently that you think our listeners might be interested in? Uh, well, I have currently got this book I'm holding up here that you can't see on the podcast, which my children bought me for Christmas. I think it's some kind of attempt at mummy's black humour because it's called How to Kill Your Family. It's a, a mildly amusing novel about a young woman who seems to be a bit of a sociopath and who is in the process of killing all her family because she's very cross at her father who uh, abandoned her and wanted nothing to do with her. I haven't got to the end yet, but it's kind of keeping me occupied on some trains. And I don't know what the hidden message is that my children are trying to give me, but that was my Christmas present. I have read that. I really loved Bella Mackey's other book, Jog On, which is nonfiction. It was about how she used running to manage her anxiety. And it was really comforting for me in quite a dark time. Although, unfortunately, I never got into running, but I have prioritised my physical health a lot more and go to the gym a lot more. But How to Kill Your Family have very mixed views on it, Lucy. Mm, well, you know. I'm, I'm not going to spoil the ending, but read it and tell me what you think, because... Mm, I was yeah, well, the jury's out. The jury is out on it, but I'm, you know, I'm still going with it. It's useful if you've had to put it down for two weeks and you need to remember where, you, you know, it's not one of those that you have to keep going with. Otherwise, you lose the plot and have to start again. I've been able to pick it up and put it down, which is key because otherwise I won't read any fiction at all, frankly. Finally, then, tweet of the week. Now, Malvika and I did just record a different episode this week, so we've had to scramble around for tweets this week. But Lucy, I'll let you start. What have you seen on Twitter that has got you thinking this week? I mean, I've sort of mentioned it already, but I found, I don't know where it is now, but I found a tweet that was linking to an article in Council magazine about perceptions of regional accents. And it's quite mixed, actually, in terms of what different people's perceptions of it are. But there's certainly some suggestion in there that it can be something that either does impact on people's behaviour or responses or at least people perceive that it's having an impact so I just thought it was really interesting because it wasn't that long ago that someone said to me said something in passing about my West Country accent and I thought what West Country accent and I think again that's one of those things that's changing but it's all those little soft things that make a difference isn't it and can make people feel less confident about themselves when perhaps they ought not to so anyway I thought that was quite interesting to read you did send me that tweet Lucy and it is at Chris J underscore Warner who says barristers with regional accents often lacked role models who sounded like them and that jokey comments created a sense of othering and feelings of imposter syndrome she was quoting council magazine she finishes it off by saying I'm a barrister from South London and I won't apologise. Was that your South London accent, Malvika? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. That was my accent. <laughs> I'm so sorry, everyone. My tweet of the week, I also was really interesting this week. I know Malvika's got a bit of a lighthearted one for us to end on, but um, my tweet of the week was from a friend of the show, Oliver Conway, who I know listens, who noticed that I think it was Alex Chandler KC had been using an artificial intelligence bot to ask questions of to see if family lawyers are about to be replaced by artificial intelligence and so he decided to put in some generic questions that he as a solicitor gets asked all the time so things like I've been invited to a public law outline meeting with social services what should I do my children told a social worker I hit them what should I do that sort of thing and it is scarily accurate this advice some of it is just you know go and find a lawyer and speak to them few there's still some people left with jobs but a lot of it is actually really sensible (laughs) good advice 
that the aristers and solicitors are giving up and down the country that's literally been produced by an artificial intelligence bot so that was a very scary and dystopian future looking for us we're not going to make it to kc Malvika because we'll be out of a job yeah my boyfriend is absolutely sick to death of me telling him how much i love my job and how important it is and how much added value there is to my job and how i love coming home and how incredibly gratifying it is and he sent me an article link recently which effectively said that we're all going to be replaced by robots so he told me not to get too comfortable so consider me warned and my tweet of the week is is not lighthearted i'm not sure what you thought i was going to uh, to be quoting but i confused it with your rooney vardy recommendation right so my tweet of the week is from at s glaster young i think shelly glaster young might have the most tweets of the week on this podcast i don't know she tweets some bangers but she's done it again and this one is annoying to say the least troubling and she is talking about an experience that she had at court and she quotes the exchange court security and you are me counsel court security Oh, you're not the, uh, insert anything but the barrister here. Are we still doing this? I mean, they were perfectly pleasant, but I just feel the follow-up question and statement is not necessary. Now, if you don't follow Shelley, first of all, what are you doing? You should follow her. She tweets some great stuff. Her pinned post is this fabulous photo of her propped up on a mirrored table showing off her amazing tattoos. And that tweet has been there for absolutely ages. I can't remember when I first saw it. And she says that she's only been led by tattooed women's silks. Not that she's saying it's a team requirement. And there isn't just one way to barrister. So she's been talking about this for a long time, about how she faces certain prejudices about what a barrister should look like and how she doesn't fit into that neat, tidy box. And I think that it's really unfortunate that we're still having these experiences at court where people look at us for whatever reason and think, mm, you don't fit the mould, really, do you? You must be the, I don't know, interpreter defendant, client, insert, whatever, anything except barrister. So just a reminder, the barristers come in all shapes, sizes, colours, tattooed, piercings, whatever, and we don't all fit into a perfect little public schoolboy mould. Here, here. Amazing. Well, Lucy, all that's I have to say is thank you so, so much for joining us. We know how extremely busy and important you are. So we are very, very humbled that you've taken the time <laughs> to speak to us. Um, and I know that people will be really excited about this episode. I've told a couple of people that you're coming on and they've been so excited to hear it. So we can't wait to get this out and hopefully everyone can enjoy your words of wisdom as much as we have. So thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me on. Any final words before we sign off? Oh, well, do you know, when I gave up smoking very long time ago the only way I could do it was to say on my blog publicly that I was giving up smoking because then I had to stick to it so can I say on this podcast now if I become a really obnoxious big head will you all tell me please we're here for you don't worry we will be ready to call you out and pull you off your silk pedestal good because people keep saying oh you're very important now and I keep wanting the floor to swallow me up it's all a bit weird we're always happy to speak truth to power, Lucy. Don't worry about good, it. Good, good. Please do that. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. And we're signing off until next time.